Gentle women and gentlemen, this is Avery After Dark, and I am your host, Avery Ross. I hope everyone had a very Merry Christmas and is gearing up for the new year, the big 2023. It has been so cold where I live, so I've been hunkered down, keeping warm with my doggies. I'm also excited to announce the podcast is going to have a new segment at the end of every episode. We're doing Ask Aves. That's me. I'm Aves. I get a lot of questions from you all, and I try my best to answer them on Instagram and YouTube, TikTok, but this way I can answer a few of your questions every week at the end of the episodes. You can send in those burning questions to the email in the show notes. I just like talking with you guys, so ask me anything. Cases, haunting, story times, personal questions. I'm here to answer it all, so stay tuned for that coming up at the end of today's episode. And if you haven't already, I'd be real grateful if you left a nice little rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps a lot, so thank you all. Now, today's story is a real case that captivated viewers because, frankly, it's bizarre. It's commonly known as the Gone Girl case. We're talking about the kidnapping of Denise Huskins, a Vallejo, California woman, who was abducted under very strange circumstances in 2015. Denise, along with her boyfriend at the time, Aaron Quinn, awoke one night to an intruder standing over their bed, and from there, it's a story stranger than fiction. The details of this case are insane, and it reads like the plot of a thriller movie. So let's go back to the start. In 2015, Aaron Quinn, 30, and Denise Huskins, 29, both lived in Vallejo, California, and both worked as physical therapists. The two had only just met seven months before all this went down, and they met on a group outing with some other physical therapists. The two were reportedly just drawn to each other. But it wasn't so simple as boy meets girl. Aaron was very conflicted because he had just gotten out of a relationship with an ex-fiancé who he said cheated on him. According to the couple, Aaron was in a bit of a rough patch, but Denise really believed that he was a good guy and wanted to give their relationship a shot, so they began dating. But things took a turn when in February 2015, Denise found out that Aaron had been messaging his ex-fiancé behind her back, and they were talking about getting back together. Uh-oh. Denise said that this was devastating, and the next couple weeks, the two were going back and forth over what they should do. And on March 22nd, the couple made a plan that would change both of their lives forever. They decided to meet at Aaron's house in Mare Island, Vallejo, to decide if they wanted to continue their relationship. Let's talk it out. Let's figure out if we want to be together. Why are you talking to your ex? And so on. And Aaron lived in a very safe suburb, lots of professionals and families. So the two sat down and discussed their relationship that night. They had dinner together and ultimately came to the decision that they wanted to give it another shot. They were going to stay together, work through it. And they went to sleep that night thinking this was a fresh start. But the two were jolted awake at 3 a.m. to a real-life nightmare. They were being swarmed by a group of men with guns. One of these men was standing over their bed in a black wetsuit with lasers pointed in their faces. They heard others walking around their home downstairs. The intruder standing over them says, Wake up. This is a robbery. 
The intruder says that he is laying ties at the end of the bed and then tells Denise, you're going to tie Aaron's hands behind his back and tie his feet together. The couple also notice that this intruder is calling Aaron by his name, and this terrifies them even further because they know who Aaron is. Meaning, this isn't a random robbery. This was planned. Another strange detail, Denise said that although he was giving them these orders, the intruder was strangely courteous, encouraging Denise as she tied up her boyfriend, telling her, quote, you're doing a really good job. Denise is also then tied up the exact same way as Aaron, and then the intruder takes them into Aaron's closet. He places swim goggles over the couple's eyes with blacked out tape over them so they can't see. The intruder then informs the couple that he and his group of attackers are from a well-organized, highly trained group that collected financial debt. Aaron is being asked questions about his finances, his personal life, when suddenly, the intruder makes a stunning realization. He questions Aaron, do Denise and your ex-fiance look alike? Aaron says, yes, they both have long blonde hair. The intruder then pauses and says, we got the wrong intel. Meaning, Denise was not their intended victim. Aaron's ex-fiance was. Aaron had actually lived in that home with his ex-fiance before the breakup, and she had only moved out recently. So in this moment, the couple believe maybe because of the mix-up, they'll leave. But they don't. They decide to continue. And again, this intruder is asking Denise throughout this, are you comfortable? At one point, Denise even asks for a blanket and the intruder says, oh, sorry, I didn't realize how cold it is because we're all wearing wetsuits. This intruder then places headphones on their ears. Both of these headphones are playing soothing, relaxing type of music. But on Aaron's headphones, there's a pre-recorded distorted voice that starts talking. This voice says that this is a kidnapping. They are going to take his girlfriend for 48 hours, hold her ransom, and if he tries anything, they will hurt Denise. The intruder then brings over glasses of cough syrup that was laced with a sedative and tells them if they don't drink it, it'll be injected. The intruder leaves Aaron instructions on what he's supposed to do, specifically the ransom money. The intruder demands that Aaron pay him two installments of $8,500. This amount is also very telling and further indication that this was a targeted attack because two payments of $8,500 is the exact amount that Aaron could afford. He had this in his bank account. But the sedatives are working quickly and Aaron passes out around 5 a.m. At the same time, the intruder takes Denise, carries her outside, places her in the trunk of his car, and then drives off into the night. Hours pass. And Aaron eventually wakes up from this sedative-induced sleep to find that Denise is gone, and the intruders have taped off a section on the first floor with red tape, instructing him not to go outside those boundaries or else they will hurt Denise. Aaron is still very groggy from the drugs, but sees the intruder left a camera there as well, so Aaron figures that he is being watched and monitored through this camera. And if he does anything, makes any wrong move, Denise will be killed. And it wasn't just Denise that he feared was in danger. The intruder said that if he went to police, his entire family would be killed. Aaron then makes a call to his work to inform them that he nor Denise will be coming in today because they're sick. And then he falls back asleep until 11.30 a.m. Many, many are thrown off by this detail specifically. How could you fall back asleep when your girlfriend is kidnapped? Aaron reiterated that he was drugged and didn't know what to do. 
But this detail will come back to haunt him down the line with police. And now a quick word from today's sponsors. You're back with Avery After Dark. Ten hours after Denise was taken, Aaron calls his brother, who urges him to call police. He then says he made the toughest call of his life and dials 911, not knowing if this would be endangering Denise. Aaron tells police what happened, the invasion, the kidnapping, and police immediately respond. Police go public and hold a press conference asking for any information on Denise's whereabouts. Her picture is all over the news. A massive search ensues. But behind closed doors, police are looking much closer to home. They are incredibly suspicious of Aaron, and they take him in for questioning at police headquarters. This quickly turns into a full-blown 18-hour interrogation in a room with no windows or clocks. Aaron tells authorities that per their instructions, the kidnappers told him to keep his phone on as they would be calling with details about the ransom. But police confiscate the phone and put it into airplane mode. Aaron continues to tell police what happened. But to them, it sounds theatrical. The intruder dressed in a wetsuit, the blacked out swim goggles, the headphones with the soothing music, the pre-recorded messages, the sleeping potion. Investigators say this is not how abductions usually go. This is reading like a movie script. Police simply don't believe him. They think it sounds made up and accuse him of being a cold, calculated killer. Police also ask if there's been any tension in the relationship lately, meaning they know that Aaron had been caught cheating on Denise with his ex-fiancee. They also question him falling back asleep that morning, but Aaron maintains that he had nothing to do with this. He was drugged and feared for Denise's life if he did call 911. One other detail, the ransoms were never paid. So this, again, in police's eyes, looks like a fraud. Police are even sharing this theory with Denise's mom and dad, saying, yeah, Denise may have been kidnapped, but also, maybe she wasn't. Police flat out tell Denise's dad, Mike Huskins, that Aaron's story doesn't make sense to them, and they're looking at this case as a murder, not a kidnapping. And Aaron Quinn is suspect number one. So they aren't using much manpower searching for Denise. They believe that he killed Denise and then made up the kidnapping to cover his tracks. As they're interrogating him, they say, Aaron, you aren't a bad guy, but you did a bad thing. Unknowingly to everyone, including Denise, she was being driven by the intruders 150 miles away to a hideout in South Lake Tahoe. When she comes to, she has no idea where she is. She was drugged and blindfolded in the trunk, but gets to this home and is carried to a back bedroom with blacked out windows. The intruders continue to force feed her these sedative drinks, keeping her drugged most of the time. And sadly, the intruder did call Aaron's phone with demands, but wasn't able to connect with anyone as police had put it in airplane mode and confiscated it. Denise is trying to find a way out of this alive, and she believes that she has a better chance if she connects with her captor. She tries to show him who she is, appeal to his emotions. In turn, Denise says the intruder tells her that he admires her, tells her how strong she is, that she and her boyfriend Aaron are good people and don't deserve this. This shouldn't be happening to you. He also makes a sickening remark to Denise that he wishes that they would have met under different circumstances. Tragically, Denise is raped by the intruder while being held captive, and the intruder even shows her news of the police searching for her. 
Denise sees an interview and a message from her dad, Mike, where he speaks to his daughter directly and tells her to be strong like you always are. Strangely, as Denise is being held captive, the intruders begin sending messages to the San Francisco Chronicle. In the emails, they refer to Denise, and in the email, attach a recording of her voice saying, I'm Denise Huskins, I am kidnapped, but other than that, I am fine. And at this point, Denise has been at this remote location for nearly two days, when suddenly, her intruder makes a decision. A decision that Denise believed was the end for her. She's drugged again, thrown back into the trunk of the car, and the two start a long, long journey. They drive for hours. All the while, Denise is tied and blindfolded in the trunk. Shockingly, on Wednesday morning, 48 hours after Denise was abducted, her captor opens up the back trunk and helps Denise out of the car. He unties her and removes her blindfold. And where is she? 400 miles away in Huntington Beach, California, her hometown, just a few streets over from her mother's home. Her captor tells Denise that he is getting out of this line of work and that this is not what he wants to do anymore. He then drives off, leaving Denise standing there alone. Denise finds a man who was gardening and asked to use his cell phone. This man says that she seemed calm. She wasn't crying at all, just simply asked, can I borrow your cell phone? She calls police and she is reunited with her parents and Aaron. Denise is home safe. She's back and she tells of what happened to her. She informs police of what her captor did to her and how he ultimately drove 400 miles to drop her back off in her hometown. She had told her captor where she was from, but it's almost nearly unheard of for a captor to act in such a way. Criminal profilers were brought in, and they said, yeah, we've seen nothing like this before. Police also look over Denise's body and saw no marks of any kind. No scratches, no bruises, no sign of any trauma. To put it frankly, police weren't buying her story. They begin to ask more accusatory questions. They have a new theory. They believe that Denise and Aaron made this entire thing up. Together, the couple staged her kidnapping. It was just one big hoax. For a lot of you, I know what may be flashing in your head. Gone Girl. It is very similar to the film that had only just come out a year before, so it was very fresh in people's minds. The plot of Gone Girl can be summed up as a woman stages her own abduction to get back at her cheating boyfriend or husband. Then she reappears, gets this enormous amount of attention, sympathy, and money. So to police, this looked like their MO, to fake this abduction for their own personal gain. It also didn't help that Denise was this very pretty blonde like the lead in the movie. In turn, Aaron and Denise are like, are you kidding me? Why would we ever do this to ourselves or to our friends and family? But Vallejo PD, specifically Lieutenant Kenny Park, is going public with press conferences saying that they are investigating this entire ordeal and they are going to uncover what really happened. By this point, Denise is clearly seeing that she is now a suspect. They aren't treating her like the victim. They aren't trying to track down her captors. They believe that she staged her own brutal abduction. So she stops talking to them. She had a family member that advised her to ask for a lawyer, and this really 
sent the Vallejo PD into a tizzy. They went on a press conference and said, well, we haven't heard from Miss Huskins, and this is all very disappointing. Lieutenant Kenny Park said that Denise wasted valuable resources and denounces the victims to the world, and even says they may be pursuing criminal charges against Denise and Aaron. So Denise and Aaron have gone through one of the most traumatizing things anyone could ever imagine, and now they are on the complete defense. And now another word from today's sponsors. You're back with Avery After Dark. So Aaron and Denise are just playing defense with the Vallejo PD and the public. Meanwhile, the San Francisco Chronicle begins to receive more mysterious correspondence from an individual who is claiming responsibility for the kidnapping. In his emails, the individual wrote, Miss Huskins was absolutely kidnapped. We did it. Evan Cernofsky, a reporter at the Chronicle, was shocked as he sat at work and read these confession emails from the self-proclaimed abductor. This anonymous person even sympathized with Denise and Aaron at points, writing how wrong police are. They're good people, for he is the actual perpetrator. The correspondence from this individual fluctuated from pride, gloating over what he did, to sometimes this creepy sympathy for Denise pivoting the police as the ultimate bad guys here. But overall, Evan was beginning to question these emails. Maybe this wasn't a hoax. Maybe this was the perpetrator on the other end of these messages. Because if you remember, the Chronicle had already received that email while Denise was being held captive, including that audio clip of her voice confirming her identity, stating that she was kidnapped. And this anonymous writer was giving even further proof that he was involved. In these emails, he described a gang of college graduates that fancied themselves as an Ocean's Eleven type of group, saying they were behind this invasion and kidnapping. And this person was including photos of the gun that was used in the kidnapping, the room that Denise was held captive in. He mentioned in one email that this criminal mastermind group started smaller, with breaking into and stealing cars and elevated to kidnapping for ransom. Also, as Denise told police, this assailant writes of how he admired Denise and her strength and how impressed they were with her. One thing I saw in interviews was a former FBI agent named Stephen Gomez told 2020 that this was strange because, quote, usually perps or suspects won't write into the media about their crimes. Um, have we heard of the Zodiac Killer or BTK? In history, perps have inserted themselves into cases they're involved in. They often want the credit. They like the attention. Not always. Many don't, but some definitely do. I mean, the Zodiac Killer made a full-time job out of his correspondence with local newspapers and police. He got off on it. So I'm not sure why this former FBI agent came to this conclusion, because so many other criminal profilers state the very opposite, that those responsible will insert themselves into a case, especially if they aren't getting the credit for their crime, which in this case, Denise's captor was not. So obviously, the Chronicle is very suspicious of this person, and all of these emails are sent to Vallejo PD, along with the photos, the audio of Denise Huskins while she was being held captive. And what do Vallejo PD do? They accuse Aaron and Denise of being behind the emails as well. They say they're just trying to further cover their tracks in this big, elaborate hoax. Whew. They just keep grabbing that shovel and digging themselves deeper, don't they? It just seems like in the Vallejo PD's eyes, this case was settled. 
and confirmed in their view as this hoax. And they didn't really want to see or consider any other evidence that was going to conflict that. And around this time, for some unknown reason, that anonymous author of those emails goes silent, leaving Denise and Aaron in this purgatory as they continue defending themselves to both the public and to police. The two couldn't even work because Denise and Aaron's employer wouldn't even talk to the two because police had told them that they were behind this hoax. For months, the two sat idle while people doubted them, looked down upon them, with criminal charges lurking over their heads. Police wouldn't even return their cars, nor their IDs. Denise said they were treated as fugitives. Until one night, everything changed. 40 miles south of Vallejo in a city named Dublin, California, there's another home invasion with details eerily similar to Denise and Aaron's. And when I say eerily similar, they are nearly identical. Listen to this. A couple wakes up to an intruder in all black, shining lasers in their face, attempting to restrain them with zip ties, planning to force feed them a cocktail of NyQuil and a sedative. Sound familiar? But in this case, the intruder is met with a struggle. The couple fights back, and this individual runs out and escapes into the night. The couple call police in distress and report the invasion. Police arrive on the scene and find the intruder accidentally dropped something as he escaped. One thing you do not want to leave behind at the scene of a crime. His cell phone. I mean, you may as well just drop your driver's license. This is one of the most damning pieces of evidence that you can leave behind. So Dublin police take this cell phone and track it back to an address in Orange Vale, California. Police contact the individuals registered at this address and a woman who lives in the home says, oh yeah, that phone belongs to my adult son. Dublin police did something that Vallejo PD did not. They identified Matthew Muller as the suspect. Matthew was a Harvard grad who now lived in South Lake Tahoe. This was another huge shock because, by all accounts, Matthew Muller was one of the last people you would ever suspect of these crimes. He was a high achiever, came from a good home, good parents. Matthew was a Marine. He served his country. He returned to California, enrolled in college, got married, applies, and enrolls at Harvard Law School. After graduation, he lands a great job at a very well-known San Francisco law firm where he focuses on immigration law. So this is a guy that people looked up to. His community admired him. He was a hard worker, dedicated. I mean, Matthew Muller is even seen in archived news footage outside court defending his clients. But things eventually took a downward turn for Matthew. He was being disbarred, so he was losing his job, his career, and his personal life was taking a huge hit. He was getting divorced after 10 years. He was spiraling, his life was out of control, and he was reportedly diagnosed bipolar as well. So big ups and major downs. Police tracked down Muller's address to a remote home in South Lake Tahoe. Nearby, they find one of those mentioned stolen cars that the author referenced in those emails to the San Francisco Chronicle. Police are quickly gaining confidence that they have their guy. Police arrest and take Matthew Muller into custody, and they report that he seemed calm, almost as if he knew this was coming. 
And his home and car are a well of evidence and point right back to Denise and Aaron. Investigators find those duct tape cover goggles with Denise's blonde hair still stuck on them. The gun that he had sent a photo of to the Chronicle was in his possession, and this gun was actually a toy gun that he painted black. In Matthew's car, they find his GPS still plugged into that Huntington Beach address where he dropped Denise off months before. Police find numerous direct ties from Matthew to Denise and Aaron's invasion and kidnapping. News spreads that the actual perp has been found, and Denise and Aaron are vindicated. After months, they are now seen for who they truly were. They were the victims of a horrible, traumatizing crime. They weren't behind it. They didn't pull a hoax. Police got it very wrong. Denise describes this period as a very sad time for her because yet another family was traumatized. Both she and Aaron told police this man would strike again, but they did not listen. Police found that Matthew Miller was also connected to two other very similar home invasions in Palo Alto and Mountain View, California, also in that same year. The crimes were almost identical, down to the intruder making the victims put on swim goggles and drink a NyQuil sedative, but police did not make any connections to these cases. And in the end, it was Dublin PD who cracked this case open. They did such a great job and deserve a lot of credit. They did what the Vallejo PD would not. Matthew Muller was charged in Denise's kidnapping and sentenced to 40 years and was more recently sentenced to 31 years for robbery, rape, and burglary. But what about this Ocean's Eleven gang? What about this group that Matthew Muller claimed was behind these crimes? Well, police very much believe that he is the sole perpetrator and he used this illusion of more men to instill fear in his victims, make them comply with his orders when he would break in. On the other hand, Denise and Aaron still believe that there were other men there. It wasn't just Matthew Muller. The two are very adamant that they heard other men downstairs during that invasion, opening cabinets, moving around the home. They could feel the vibrations of them walking around while Matthew Muller was standing right next to them. They believe it's easier for police to say he was the sole perp because it closes the investigation, but they do fear that these men may come back one day. It's also believed that the intended target was Aaron and his ex-fiance, which would mean Matthew Muller had plans to commit this crime for months, maybe even years. How he found or chose Aaron has never been revealed. But Matthew Muller did think of himself as a criminal mastermind. He would find his victim, stalk them, memorize their daily routine, and then break in in the middle of the night. Eventually, the Vallejo police mailed an apology letter to Denise and Aaron, saying they regret the comments they made. They proved to be unnecessarily harsh and offensive. Denise sees this letter as, sorry, not sorry. And Denise and Aaron filed a civil suit against the Vallejo PD, and there was a settlement of $2.5 million awarded to Denise and Aaron. Denise and Aaron moved out of Vallejo, and with Matthew Muller now in prison, they've written about their experiences in a new book called Victim F, From Crime Victims to Suspects to Survivors. The couple is very vocal about their story and want to share it for others who are victims. 
Denise says that in the end, the couple's experience of trauma and survival is ultimately a love story with a happy ending. Denise and Aaron married in 2018 and had a daughter, Olivia, who was born five years to the day that Denise was released by her kidnapper. That is so wild. Police do believe that if Matthew Muller had not dropped his cell phone that night, they would still be searching for their suspect. It's very interesting to see this case compared to the Shiri Papini case, the other Gone Girl case, which I covered a few months back here on the podcast. Shiri Papini, another California woman, actually did stage her own abduction in 2016, just a year after Denise's kidnapping. Sherry claimed that she was abducted during a jog and reappeared three weeks later. And as soon as she made it back, she started to collect payments from the victim's compensation board. And Sherry essentially got away with this for years. She wasn't outed as a fraudster until March 2022, while Denise and Aaron were treated like suspects from day one. It looks like in Sherry's case, police were much more apprehensive about accusing someone of faking their own kidnapping, probably after the Denise Hutchins case, watching that really blow up in Vallejo PD's face. No one wanted to repeat that. Denise Huskins made comments that she wasn't, quote, a good enough victim for police. She reappeared and didn't, quote, look like she had been kidnapped. That's one of the reasons I think it's so important to share Denise and Aaron's story, they really want their experience to be known, what they overcame, their obstacles, hoping their story gives strength to other victims, others who maybe weren't believed. Police were really thrown off that Denise didn't seem overly emotional, that she was very stoic. Yeah, it's called shock, brother. Psychologically, it's been proven that victims that experience severe trauma will go into shock disassociate to protect themselves. Just because someone isn't huddled, wailing in the corner crying, doesn't mean that they are not legitimate. There's no one way for a victim to act. There's no right way or wrong way. And Denise and Aaron's case proves that. It is now time for Ask Aves. Let's reach into this big mailbag and pull out our first question. This one comes from Marion, and she writes, I really love scary stuff, scary movies, TV shows, but my boyfriend hates it. He won't watch anything scary with me. I really wish he would. What should I do? Hmm. Dump him. No. I can say probably 99% of guys I have dated don't like scary stuff, so I've been there. Usually it's one of my first date questions. Do you like scary movies? Do you believe in ghosts? Et cetera, et cetera. And most of the time they say, uh, not really. Ooh, it's a blow. It hurts. I feel ya. But if you like them, stick with them. I am not a big sports person at all, and many of the guys that I have dated are very into sports. So it's okay for everyone to have their own tastes, and who knows? Maybe he'll come around one day. This time next year, you two could be having a scary movie marathon. You never know. Next question comes from Ben L. Ben writes, how do you pick your stories and or cases that you cover? Thank you for the question, Ben. For the hauntings, mysteries, and true crime, I pick based on stories that I would want to listen to, stories I want to hear. And I usually try to find ones that haven't been covered as much. I know for myself, I don't want to watch or listen to 100 episodes on the same case. 
We got it. Thank you. That's why when I hear you guys say, I haven't heard of this case before when I cover something, that makes me feel like I'm doing good work. There are so many stories out there, we really don't need to talk about the same ones over and over and over again until we're blue in the face. I like to learn about new cases, and there's a lot of stories out there that deserve to be shared. And for the Avery After Dark original story times, ideas will pop into my head and I just roll with them. Sometimes I'll see something online or I'll hear something and I think, hmm, that would make a great story. I've loved everything supernatural, haunted, mysteries since I was young. I studied journalism and film in college and pursued acting throughout my 20s. I've studied in New York City and LA, which was really great to develop those skills. So creatively, this is really what I've always wanted to do. Ultimately, my dream is to have my own production company where I can produce my own TV shows and movies. Whether those are my own stories or books that I have read that I love, that is my end goal. Our final question comes from Minnie G. She asks, what are your thoughts on the Idaho 4 case? You know, my thoughts are, it's tragic and I've chosen to remain silent on this one out of respect for the victims and their families. I really want to give them their privacy They are the focus here. Those families are grieving and want justice, and I pray for them. This is also a very active and intense police and FBI investigation. They have come out and said publicly, stop with the internet theory witch hunts. But alas, everyone on the internet, TikTok, YouTube, is hopping on with their theories. It's just disrespectful and in poor taste, in my opinion. It's good to just... Let the police and the FBI do their job, and I hope that this case is solved soon. Because I think we can all agree those students and their families deserve justice. That's about it for today's Ask Aves. I will get to more questions at the end of next episode, so be sure to send in those questions to the email in the show notes. I look forward to hearing from you all. Share this podcast with your friends, family, coworkers, and until next episode... This is Avery After Dark.